On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation, harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. In June, the foundation approved $85 million in new projects to accelerate discovery and inspire curiosity. Requests for funding will be accepted until August 16th. Learn more at templeton.org. Forms of religious devotion are shifting just like every institution right now. But there's a new world of creativity towards crafting spiritual life while appreciatively exploring the depths of tradition. Rabbi Amakai Lau-Levie is a fun and forceful embodiment of this evolution. Born into an eminent and ancient rabbinical lineage, as a young adult, he moved away from religion towards storytelling, theater, and drag. These days, he leads a pop-up synagogue in New York City with a global profile that takes as its tagline, everybody-friendly, artist-driven, God-optional. This is not merely about spiritual growth and community, but about reinventing the very meaning of we. We are catering to generations of all ages who are seeking spiritual meaning and who are a little burnt out and tired by cliché and by some of the religious offerings and traditional trappings. And without being too rude and too funny, the language that I've been trying to wrestle with dances that very thin line, that very tight rope between, you know, we're loyal to the past and we're loyal to our audience and we're finding the in-between and it's how to be cheeky without being cheesy and how to be profound, how to bring the sacred. I think we're starving for the sacred. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. I spoke with Amakai Lau-Levy in 2016, the year he was ordained as a rabbi in the conservative tradition of Judaism. He lives in New York City, where he's founding spiritual leader of Lab Shul and the Storytelling Project. He was born in Israel. So I, you know, I ask this question of everybody in some version, but I'm really looking forward to your answer. Um, how you would start to describe the religious background of your childhood? Hmm. So my task on Fridays growing up in preparation for the Sabbath um, was to help my mother set the table. And she would bring out the best silver in China, and I would help set it. And that means I would go around in the neighborhood and pick flowers from either neighbors' front yards or for some general public areas. And I remember that as a task that I loved. Hmm. And I would get lost, and I would make little arrangements, and I would put them in the middle of the table, and that was my thing. And this both spoke to my spiritual aesthetics, to very much being in my mother's house. And in, um, I don't know where to put the queer exactly in there, but it certainly catered to that type of artistic Mm -hmm. sensibility. And people ask me today what I would do if I wouldn't be doing clergy work. And I I say I would probably open a very boutique-y type of florist shop (laughs) that would only function on Fridays. I love that. Okay. (laughs) Now, was it also later, as you grew older, that you understood that you came from this 39 generations of rabbis from kind of an illustrious rabbinic dynasty? Was that history 
something that only made itself felt to you as you got older? Hmm. Um, on our living room wall, still is, it's a different wall, but still the living room, there's a photo of my grandfather, my father's late father, um, who was a rabbi and who uh, perished in the Holocaust. And his very distinct features and looking straight into the camera was really the icon in the in my childhood home, both because of the martyrdom and because of the rabbinic legacy and because of the huge uh, light that his story and tragic end cast over us. And I think I can I can almost place the moment when I sort of realized that this is the dynasty. And it uh, coincided with my uncle who, when I was in my early teens, was um, elected as Israel's chief rabbi mm-hmm. and, and with whom I knew very well and I grew up with him. And, and I think at around that same time, in my early teens, this notion of the legacy and its responsibility. But at some point I realized mm-hmm. that this is who who we come from, um, there is a debate whether it's 37, 38, or 39 generations, mm. but it's something in the 37-esque. And, and you, were, you were also that generation born of, in the aftermath of that, the 20th century's terrible convergence of um, Jewish history and kind of the darkest forces of, of human Capacity and human history. I mean, your father and his younger brother were liberated from Buchenwald in 1945. Is that right? By American mm-hmm. soldiers. Yeah. He was liberated um, at the age of uh, 18 and within a few months went into sort of autopilot of religious observance as a choice. And only in his late years, in his 80s, he, he had the ability to ask some of the faith questions. And I walked him through it and mm. interviewed him. And he chose to remain orthodox, to remain pious. Um, you asked about my childhood memories of, of, of religion and other than flowers for Sabbath and other beautiful gestures. My father would pray at home in the mornings. He would put on his tefillin, his leather phylacteries and his prayer shawl. And he would drink a glass of tomato juice simultaneously and glimpse at the morning paper. He was a journalist. And my memory was my father having this sort of like religious ritual at home at the dining room table while multitasking with tomato juice and a newspaper that later on became CNN. <laughs> and I mocked him for many years. I remember as a teen, I said, like, really? Like, like, you're not praying. This is like, what is this? It's a checklist. And only later, and certainly after his death, when I inherited his prayer shawl that I now put on every morning, I realized that this was his way of of sticking to discipline and committing to a path of persistence, even if the big answers and the big questions are not quite clear. Hmm. Somewhere you have spoken, and you know whether you had said these words or not, this is what one thing that comes through in your life and uh, your work. Um, your calling. You said you, is this calling to serve those who are fringe and other. And as you're speaking about um, the history uh, that your family knew personally, it's clear that that flowed into this. And so did 
your sexual identity and the fact that, I mean, this is such a striking story that when it came time for your bar mitzvah, the Torah portion included the teaching about homosexuality as, as an abomination. And I mm-hmm. wonder I wonder if um, even at that time, if you were at all conscious at that time of this planting a calling in you. It's so hard to retrieve one's mindset during those angstful teen years. Mm-hmm. Um, I have this memory of sitting at the blue desk that I had during those years between 12 and 16 and writing a short story about the scapegoat. And what happens if the Leviticus story, which is part of my bar mitzvah portion, uh, the middle chapters of Leviticus, what if the guy whose job it is to take the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement and toss the scapegoat off into the wilderness, what if the guy decides not to do it and he's just attached to the goat and he doesn't want to send the goat off? And um, I think that that was my way of asking the questions that I dared not ask about Mm. the fact that by the age of 13, I knew who I was attracted to. I knew that it was an abomination and it was a taboo that was not even to be spoken. I was in New York City at the time, in Manhattan, and so I was exposed to uh, a great deal of opportunities. This is early 80s. And um, writing about the scapegoat and about transgression and what if you don't deal with the sacred trash as when you're supposed to, but let it go, was my sort of crafty way of, of asking myself, what if? What if it's not what I grew up on? What if it's not the either or of good, bad, kosher, treif, abomination, sanctity? What if there's something else here? Um, I don't recall and I doubt I had any role models to think about this out loud with. Mm-hmm. Um, not until my later teens and my my 20s. But I think those years planted the seeds for my, somehow with grace and and despair, I guess, ask questions that were hard enough to push me over the edge in some way and to leave, to, um, to understand that my option is either to stay within the familiar structure that I grew up with, with very clear religious and um, sort of societal boundaries, uh, or dare risk the fact that there is another paradigm here, that there's another option where I'm not an abomination. What I'm feeling doesn't feel unholy. It doesn't feel messy. And, and so maybe the yeah. Torah is not right. Well, and and it's, I remember feeling at yeah. some point like there was this thing thinking, okay, one day I'm going to die and I'm going to stand before the throne of glory. And there's this one option where God's going to look at me and say, why didn't you follow the rules that all the rabbis told you? Eh, you go to hell. <laughs> or the other option was that God's going to look at me and burst out laughing and say, wow, why didn't you follow your heart? And I thought that that latter option is much worse. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with performer and rabbi Amakai Laulavi. So it seems to me that 
the arts and your another identity. I mean, right, we all what is it? We contain multitudes, right? You are you were an art, artist, an artistic person. That this became your way of staying with these questions, and also, I mean, you just said you kind of you left, you you walked out of that Judaism in which you had been raised. But it seems to me that the arts also allowed you to continue to be Jewish, right? You were you were still actually loving Judaism, even if you were doing something mm-hmm. completely different with it and its fundaments. Yeah, I would say what initially kept me tethered in a, in a holy way was storytelling and the understanding that while I might not sign up for the religious practice and for the faith in a God and in a legal religious system as is, I was attached and mesmerized by the body of storytelling mm-hmm. and by the tradition of storytelling, whether it's the Talmud or the Midrash, the Jewish legends, or the, the Kabbalistic tales. And being in a in a situation where I'd sit around a table with a bunch of people and we'd open one of the books and we'd talk about any of the stories, Jacob wrestling or you have it. And then the permission to use the storytelling as a pretext and as a context for our own text, for our own lives, was mesmerizing. I, I realized that at some point in my late teens and the, the knowledge that I'm part of this relay race of this lineage of people who for thousands of years are contemplating and interpreting the text and that I too am invited and permitted to continue the interpretation on the margins that then become the text. That was what first kept me interested in my early 20s, the notion of just opening the pages of Talmud, Hmm. whether I have a, you know, beanie on my head and I'm keeping the Sabbath or not. And that eventually led into the interest in a more personalized spiritual vocabulary. When, when did you, how old were you when you founded um, Storytelling? Storytelling, I was about 28, 29. Okay. So this, was, this kind of led to that eventually. Yeah, yeah. You wanted to, re, to renew the drama of the stories, it seems to me, the dynamism of the stories. I mean, and even here again is the, where the artist of you came in. I mean, there's, you know, as you said, what if, what if this is actually theater? Um, and actually you're working with best-selling literature and there's already an audience there, but it's a bad performance. Um, and so, you know, there's something very passionate and playful also, as serious as it, as it is, too, in the way you picked this up and wanted to transmit it to others. Absolutely. I think the playful is, is key mm-hmm. because so much of the religious narrative and, and situation is so heavy. Mm-hmm. And at some point I was interested in storytelling and I started being interested in theater and in drama because I was working in a high school with kids who couldn't care less about any of this, but they did care if you got them on their feet and you started doing some drama games. Mm-hmm. So I, I began understanding the role of masks uh, both literal and figurative, and how the as if of story and the and the imagine of storytelling and myth allows our soul and our mind to interact with possibilities that just plain facts and legal thinking as opposed to more legendary thinking doesn't. But here's prime time. 
the Jews and the pews. There's about 500 people here on a Saturday morning for an hour. Instead of being invigorated by the storytelling, they're just being chanted to. Mm-hmm. And it's Hebrew. They don't understand it. And it's long and it's, it's, it's dire. So I went researching what is the history of this ritual, this Torah service ritual, and discovered that it is indeed one of the oldest storytelling ceremonies in continuity on the planet. Mm-hmm. It is Judaism's oldest educational device of sharing the tribal story with the community once a week. And that until a thousand years ago, every time it was done, it was done in split screen. You had the chanter in Hebrew and the translator in vernacular. Hmm. And the translator was not just translator. He was an interpreter and a storyteller. And there are records of this tradition happening in the Old Testament and the New Testament in later writings. And for a bunch of reasons, this tradition died out a thousand years ago. And I thought, how fantastic to bring it back, to bring back the live translator, to bring back the MC, to wrestle with the biblical story in ways that will uh, be meaningful in the 21st century and not to take it verbatim, but figure out how the translation can become a theatrical, dramatized vehicle to engage people in the wrestling with the text. Mm. And how was um, Hadassah Gross born? Who was kind of a drag character you created, Sabbath Queen. Wow, you've done your research. Allah Zsa uh, Gabor, who just who just yes, died. Rest in peace. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. rest in peace, Zsa. Yeah. I read the obituaries with extra care. Hadassah loved her. Well, I thought of you. I thought of you while I was. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's a great compliment. Zsa was indeed a role model. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's this, there's this holiday once a year called Purim, which is the Jewish sort of carnival where the scroll of Esther is recited in synagogues and people put on masks and drink. It's very carnival and it has indeed very ancient Persian pagan roots and sort of became Jewishized. I, of course, loved the Purim since I was a child. Um, there are photos of me doing drag at the age of four. Um, but and it wasn't called drag, year. I'm sure. It was called Purim Costume. I became okay. my cousin Rachel. Right. And then I became a yeah. Russian piano teacher. And <laughs> I, there's, there's, there's great photos. Mm-hmm. But I, um, yeah, you are allowed. This is, it's, it's, it's the topsy-turvy. And the older I got, I was interested in what Purim has to offer us as grown-ups in this masking and unmasking. And also politically, Purim is a very interesting and complicated conversation about racism and about the ethnic and the other within us. Right. Um, and um, one Purim in the late 90s, I was MC of some kind of an Esther scroll event, and I had one vodka too many, and Hadassah Gross emerged out of my head like Athena <laughs> with a full name. That was her name, Hadassah Gross. I knew she was Hungarian. I knew she was a widow, and she was a Kabbalah teacher. Mm-hmm. Was, she a, remember- was she a rabbi's wife also? Yes. Okay. So, so you said you weren't yes. going to be a rabbi, but you could be a rabbi's wife. Exactly. She she was in fact the widow of a rabbi. Okay. And again, this is at the time this was just fun drag. You know, I was I was in New York. I was hanging out with the radical fairies and other interesting queer spiritual groups where drag was sort of okay in many ways of fluidity, uh, in between spirituality and joking and mm-hmm. ritual and 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 shows, and that. In between, it's not serious, it's not play, it's not drag, it's not not, it's well, lighting candles became a very sacred place. Hmm. Um, she served an important role in my own coming to terms with being out. She had an important role with my father's dealing with me coming out. And How, How's that? 
Was um, that? Well, you know, at some point there was an Israeli newspaper that interviewed, um, did a big piece on Hadassah and interviewed my father who said, um, they asked him, what do you think about Hadassah? And he said, um, she has great legs. <laughs> <laughs> had you Which, ever had a conversation uh, with your father about this? A little bit. And it was something about the hmm. humor that allowed him to laugh with me at this phenomena. So That's lovely. Th- th- there was something very healing in what she brought. After a short break, more with Rabbi Amakai Laulavi. And you can find the show again in several libraries at onbeing.org, including Judaism, Public Theology Reimagined, and Intentional Communities. We created libraries from our 15-year archive for browsing or deep diving by topic, for teaching and reflection and conversation. Find this and an abundance of more at onbeing.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with Rabbi Amachai Laulavi, exploring the reinvention of religion and the reinvention of the meaning of we. He is an especially creative exemplar of engaging religious tradition while also applying its forms for people now. Born of an eminent Orthodox rabbinical lineage, he once moved away from Judaism towards storytelling, theater, and drag. These days, he leads something called Lab Shul, a pop-up synagogue in New York City with a global profile that takes as its tagline, everybody-friendly, artist-driven, God-optional. So when you, when you ordained, the Times of Israel wrote, um, with an eye on Jewish continuity, maverick spiritual leader goes mainstream. <laughs> um, you know... It does sound like in many of those years between, you know, your bar mitzvah and and the time you were actually ordained or decided to get on the path to becoming a rabbi, you would not have imagined that that's where you were heading, even though I also sense that you never stopped loving Judaism. Um, I think wrestling, as you said, the story about Jacob is mm-hmm. very apt. It's not a love-hate. It's a love and deep understanding of the deep repair and rebranding that is, in my opinion, needed. Not just rebranding in the terms of of text, but in the deep tissue of what it is that thousands of years later the Jewish people carry and what gifts and treasures we still have to work through and share with the world. So I feel a deep love and a deep sense of honoring the legacy that I was born into and the richness that I'm so privileged to have inherited and been taught. And what's needed in this new time, in this new, these new days and this, this new paradigm, where Judaism, I believe, must evolve, is evolving, to retain its particularity while being radically universal. So, you know, when you use language like rebranding, uh, I think it, it could be heard as kind of cynical 
or, you know, dumbing things down, um, you know, turning to consumerist uh, impulses. And I, and I don't think you, mm-hmm. and it doesn't actually sound that way when it comes out of your mouth, but I think a cynic would hear it that way. Um, to me, it kind of points back at the artist in you. I mean, you you'd said at some point that you once went around saying that artists are the new rabbis and and then you you transition to rabbis or the new artists. And so, like, if I look at the, well, maybe let's call it the tagline of Lab Shul. Would you call Lab Shul, would you call it a congregation, a synagogue? Yes. What would you? Yeah. No, okay. it's a congregation. It's your congregation, We're, and you are the yeah. spiritual leader and the founding mm-hmm. spiritual leader. So it's like everybody friendly, artist driven, God optional, all ages. And I just tell me a little bit about. Why those four phrases? Uh, what and missing is pop up, by the way, which What's is missing? not there, but pop up, pop up, pop up. So, so we're 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 transient, okay, um, physical wise. Mm-hmm. And the taglines really look at what does it mean for us to reimagine what is the role and the purpose of certainly religion and 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 the Jewish story in the twenty first century. So everybody friendly means that we're really not checking who you are based on dissent or consent on blood or belief. You're here as a seeker, welcome. Jew, Jewish, other <laughs> blended families, people from all paths, welcome. God optional is a tricky term that I came up with because for so many people, the word God is so off-putting. And the notion of prayer or, or a, a transcendental being, deity, that we grew up with in the Hebrew schools and in the synagogues of our youth is not really speaking to who we are. So God optional is our way of saying agnostic friendly, atheist friendly. It's a metaphor. If you truly connect to prayer, yay. If not, it's a meditation. We translate all of our liturgy in ways that are gender neutral hierarchy-less, and uh, God-optional. And that's rather radical and speaks very, very powerfully to people of a lot of different backgrounds who are just invited into the contemplative, into the spiritual presence, understanding that our liturgy is indeed poetry Mm -hmm. and it's metaphor Mm -hmm. and it's inviting us to be present. Um, And artists are involved with every single step of how we build ritual and how we do... Um, everything, how we structure our communal life. So artist-driven is very important. Uh, Pop-up is primarily because we're in New York City and real estate is insane and we cannot afford a building. But that's also a philosophy. We go from wineries to museums to galleries in Brooklyn or Harlem or downtown and we use the internet a lot. So it's sort of an intimate, cozy place to try things out. Yeah. So... You know, there's so many things we could talk about, and I have so many notes about, you know, High Holidays Boot Camp and the meaning of repentance, and maybe we'll get to some of that. I I, I think it would be good to dwell with, um, you know, this moment we inhabit. You know, we're speaking as the political reality kind of around the world is in a very unsettled state, and... Um, Lots of surprises, lots of, well, I, th- I, think, I think unsettled is the way a lot of people feel, all, all around on every side. So maybe kind of focus on how, how I kind of draw you out on 
theology and faith and community in the context of now. You know, mm-hmm. I, I do have to say, and I haven't seen you quoting Heschel anywhere, although probably you have. Um, I keep thinking of this line of uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was also at Jewish Theological Seminary, where you went and were ordained in the conservative tradition. Um, this line of Heschel, in a free society, some are guilty while all are responsible. Hmm. Um, you wrote this beautiful reflection on words M- moving into the High Holy Days. Is that recent? Was that? That what was, was that? on words. Our private and public words matter a lot in this world of so many words. Do you know, is it, was that not you? It sounds familiar. I can't remember <laughs> so much. It's either very recent, something I wrote last week, or it is part of the... I, th- I think it's very recent. Yeah. So yeah. it must have been something I think I wrote last week as mm-hmm. I was... Um, but you were, it was my you were, father's. It was the second anniversary of my father's death, and I was at the cemetery. And um, my uncle and brother and family insisted on chanting many, many, many psalms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I was thinking, "Wow, we're chanting all these psalms so that we don't talk." Mm. And what what are the words we need, and what are the words we don't need, and what are the rituals that are healthy and vibrant, and which ones need a bit of help and where are we at this moment that what we need are healthy words and healing words and spaceful words and not just recycling the old words. Yeah. There's a, there's a transition. Um, but I think but, both, know, right? Aren't you saying, I mean, both? It, no, it's absolutely yeah. both. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you wrote I'm, in that we chant the ancient words, as did our ancestors before us, fragile, human, hopeful, honest in our return to this place, this time, this word on our journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the words are the black box that contains so many of the ancestral aspirations and truths and also baggage that needs to be checked. Mm-hmm. Um, there is an evolution. Not everything that we've inherited is worthy of being passed on, like trauma and like memories and like values that have evolved um, part of the reason why I'm not an Orthodox Jew, but a Flexidox or Polydox and otherwise Jew, um, and not just Jew, is that I do believe in evolution, not just of our species and the world, but of concepts. And if the Bible and the Jewish values that have sustained my people for thousands of years believe that women were subservient and that sexuality was of a specific type and that types of worship included slaughtering animals, we've evolved. That's not where we are. So we need to read some of those sacred words as metaphor, as bygone models, as invitations for creativity and for sort of the second meaning and the second naivete here that still retrieves this text as useful mm-hmm. and these narratives as holy, not as literal. I think that is, of course, the... the the conversation between so many of us of different religions who are struggling with our brothers and sisters who choose to read things literally and speak for a biblical truth that is unalterable, where we, some of us think that there is room here for creativity, for sacred metaphor and change. And um, we're not there yet. We're not there yet for those days of 
of dignity and equality and radical justice that Heschel and Dr. King and and um, so many of our leaders then and now are uh, hoping for. I mean, here we are. Oh, my gosh. Again? Right. And we weren't, you know, I mean, you and I could talk about it about an hour, for, for an hour, but I mean, we weren't there before either and weren't quite as conscious as we should have been about how many people were left out and how many things mm. had been happening that flew in the face of these values. Yeah. Right? There's a real kind of natural human pattern at work right now, which is change does happen at different paces for different people. And there's, you know, mm-hmm. there's kind of a classic reaction, but it's a reaction to change that is underway. You know? So in that sense, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised yeah. um, because the, the magnitude of the changes of mentality, of behavior, of values, of imagination, you know, they're vast and they're happening on so many different levels right now. You know, I, I want to share with you the the story that really came to me right after the elections, and I've used a lot since. It's this Talmudic parable about a ship that is sailing, and there are many cabins, and one of the people in the cabins uh, on the lower floor decides to dig a hole in the floor of his cabin and does so, and sure enough, the ship begins to sink. And the other passengers suddenly discover what's going on and see this guy with a hole in the floor. And he said, they, well, what are you doing? And he says, well, it's my cabin. I paid for it. And down goes the ship. And it's a story in the Talmud that talks about human responsibility in the Jewish sense, that we're all in the same ship together. But I've been wrestling with it and talking about it from the day after, the, from November 9th, talking about what does it mean for us to be that person and where have we been only focusing on my cabin and me, 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 and where are we not part of a we? And how is that true of every single one of us and how that is true in some ways of America and how the narcissistic, me-focused, insight-driven, my own needs and aspirations in this age have taken so hold of us, that the sense of public and communal and responsible for other, including the limping and the weak yeah. at the edges of our camp, in some way has not been looked at as religious traditions have taught us to. And as the, yeah. the Bible again and again reminds us, remember the other, remember the other, you are the other. And then the question is, what is the we? Because the boundaries of what is we are shifting. Yeah, what is the we and how do we... <laughs> how do we weave that together, right? Right. It's so easy to descend into animosity and either or. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of a email volley with someone in my vast family who's a lovely, lovely, lovely gentleman who sent an email around to the family saying that he voted for Trump. And couldn't understand the level of rage that came out of me in wanting to communicate with him. And I thankfully have the ways of containing and curbing my enthusiasm and waiting 24 hours before I send some emails. And so I waited to send him a very short note that said, I'm so glad we're honoring our past ancestors together. It seems like we can't quite agree on the present and the future. And I'm trying to think, how do we use love? 
How do we go face-to-face in difficult conversations with those who see the world so differently than some of us and whose values are coming from the good place of me and preservation and even have a we in mind, but it's not as expansive and radical as the we that I'm thinking of and some of us are. How do we use love? I'm sure that that's... I'm sure it's keeping you up at night. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think, know it's keeping me up at night. Yeah, and it is something we. It's like a. It's we have to walk this right. We because there aren't answers to that question you're posing. I mean, I, I was thinking also at the very beginning when you talked about a new, a new sense of God being born after the Holocaust. The kind kindness. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think love is also. It it sounds so grand, and it sounds like it's something you have to feel. And this love we have to practice now and learn to practice is so much more practical than that. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's daily. It's mm-hmm. daily practice. It's no. It's so. It's ironic to me now. I'm in my late forties, and I'm a, and I'm a father, and I'm a rabbi, and I'm looking at my life and how it's evolving, and who knows what else. And I sit every morning for a few moments, wrapped up in my father's prayer shawl. I meditate and write in my journal. I rarely use any of the liturgical texts. And what it's about is discipline. It's just daily discipline. It's a workout. And it's the workout for gratitude. And it's a workout for, you know, what Heschel called radical amazement and wonder. Yeah. yeah. And it's just an exercise in meditation and silence. Sit for a few moments and cultivate love. And, and I'm so amazed that at this point, this tool that I inherited that's in my toolbox is right there mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I don't drink tomato juice and I don't read the paper but <laughs> I kind of do what my father did I, I sort of I, I carve this little space each day for being mm-hmm. in the me so I can be there more for the we and and I am now really conscious of how at core it is an exercise in love mm-hmm. so that I can be there more agile and helpful when more contentious moments happen the moment I turn on my phone or open my front door. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with performer and rabbi Amachai Laulavi. You know, I was looking at the Lab Shul website, and it's just, it's really fun. Um, and I think it follows on, it's kind of an expression of the playful and serious forms that way of moving forward can take. Like, there's one post that's advice from Kermit. <laughs> yes. Last, and I don't know if you write these or who writes these. Last night, 15 Labshul co-creators answered their first ever community call to action to share their energy, excitement, and exasperation. In this moment when our political future feels uncertain, the resounding answer, connect. Or our sage Kermit the Frog says, someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection, the lovers, the dreamers, and me. And I, I've been humming that song ever since because I still remember <laughs> learning that when my kids were small. And it's such a beautiful song and 
I don't know. Well, I'm so happy to say that this is one of the few posts that I did not write. Okay. That I believe Rabbi Carey, who's part of our team now, did together yeah. with some of our team members. And my joy is that the language that I've tried to convey mm-hmm. is this very delicate combination of reverence and irreverence. Yeah. And it's because we are catering to generations of all ages who are seeking spiritual meaning and who are a little burnt out and tired by by cliche and by some of the religious uh, offerings and traditional trappings. And without being too um, too rude and too funny, um, the language that I've been trying to wrestle with is, is one that dances that very thin line, mm-hmm. that very mm-hmm. tight rope between, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're loyal to the past and we're loyal to the to our audience and we're finding the in-between and it's how to be cheeky without being cheesy (laughs) and how to be profound, how to bring the sacred in many ways. I think we're, we're starving for the sacred in so many ways. And, and I'll, you know, in, in, in the Jewish world, there's this renaissance of various attempts to both bring social justice and human dignity and spirituality and practice and wisdom to the forefront. And it does take rebranding. And it takes reimagining what we have to offer um, and how we get to mix and match with other traditions. And that is a, you know, a historical precedent that I think uh, we are now waking up to understand how radical it is that you and I are having this conversation and that Muslim leaders and Buddhist leaders and Zen leaders and Shinto leaders and indigenous, uh, we're all mixing and matching our tools. Yeah. And the trick is how do we keep and retain our indigenous wisdom while having this these labs and these conversations where we get to play and share and expand the wheat. But I don't actually think that that like that looks like it would be the challenge on the surface, but I don't I don't think it often is because in really profound the kind of paradox of of authentic profound interreligious connection or i think connection across uh, meaningful boundaries it, you don't you don't give up the ground you stand on right you the world becomes larger because you have seen this other and you you may have an appreciation for them or, or curiosity about what they bring into the world but you it's also the ground beneath your feet is somehow richer and more interesting i mean that's so often if the way are, it goes if you if you are, if one is aware of the ground mm-hmm. beneath one's feet, right. I think one of the where where this post ethnic opportunity and this interreligious dialogue becomes challenging is that for so many people of different faiths, the last century has not provided deep education and literacy of what it is that's so sacred and meaningful about our ground. Yeah, and you know, to me, the, again on the lab shul website. Um, there's a write-up about something that I heard about um, after the election, these meetings with Muslim and Jewish women. Um, mm-hmm. Did you write this one? On Sunday, I sat, cried, and sang with 500 Muslim no, and Jewish women Kerry at again. the Sisterhood mm-hmm. of Salam Shalom, yeah. the Salam mm-hmm. Shalom gathering. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it's a beautiful... And might sound really counterintuitive that you know this this is also a product of the post nine eleven world, you know, and it it it's very much in contrast to the renewed language of the other, 
that's out there in culture and yeah. and again you know interestingly in some ways a response to it you know the friday after the elections along with a few other people i ended up in the mosque on friday afternoon um, as the word prayers we stood outside with signs that said together against hate and i was standing there with my with my skull cap on my head and i was invited into the mosque to say a few words to to the con- and I was, I'm like, what? Here I am inside a mosque, kneeling, praying, meditating, with people. I mean, this would not. This would not have happened. Yeah. So, what is the opportunity here to discover common ground, not in anti, but in for and in favor of enlarging our sense of human responsibility, and the mystical or the the ethical Jewish notion of we are each created in the divine image is the candle that is lit on my altar. And in many ways, I believe it is lit on many, many, many altars. But in some cases, the light just doesn't, isn't cast wide enough. And one of the challenges I certainly say as a Jew right now is for us to understand in the 21st century, what is a Jew, who's in, who's out, how are we expanding and redefining the boundaries and again, it goes back to the question of who's we, mm-hmm. because it's changing. And for some people, it's too fast and too radical mm-hmm. and too scary. And for others, it's too, it's too nebulous. And for but others, it's too no slow, question. right? I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, yeah. You know, and there's, there's so much wisdom and slow. Mm-hmm. In 2006, the conservative movement, after almost a decade of deliberations and, and more even, decided to allow LGBT students to be admitted to the rabbinical seminary. And here we are a hundred years since women were able to vote in this country. And a century is and is not a long time. And I come from a long, long tradition of thousands of years of people trying to make sense of the world. Mm -hmm. Some of the changes are going to happen in my lifetime. Others I now know might not. Mm -hmm. Um, But the question is, what seeds do we keep on planting? And what low-hanging fruit can we keep on plucking? Yeah. Um, and now I would say more than ever, as, as you said, we're in such in a moment of uncertainty. Um, it feels like the call to invest in the local communal is essential. People need each other's face-to-face, hand-to-hand, while at the same time not losing sight of the bigger we, the yeah. global we. Yeah, right, and figuring out how to do that. Right. How did how to do both of how to invest in both of those ways of being in the world and 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 we need each other to figure it out because it's it's huge it's a lot to ask right it's a lot yeah. to ask with this this history we have as a species and what feels instinctive to us even when it yeah. flies in the face of what we deeply want and and in fact you know that our dna is able to handle 150 names or so mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. we do have the sort of tribal sense that of of the local and the intimate and the immediate right and yet we got thousands of facebook friends mm-hmm. and we are simultaneously called to have true empathy and compassion to what happened yesterday in berlin mm-hmm. and in ankara mm-hmm. and in aleppo mm-hmm. and in brooklyn mm-hmm. and in jerusalem and it's all in my feed and it's all people i know and my little homo sapient brain and heart isn't built to handle this 
level of traffic. Yeah, that's right. So I either shut down and I only focus on my peeps or I find some way to navigate and to negotiate what is what is fidelity and what is responsibility and how do I have the circles of intimacy and containers of we that, that sustain me and I can be helpful with and how in other ways can I be an agent of of growth in, in a larger scale in this in this global economy where we're invited to be part of. Um, so I feel that it's about showing and not telling. And um, I am co-creating a, a, a Jewish and a Jewish and a spiritual conversation that I consider to be triage at this point. This is first aid for spiritual seekers who are very, very thirsty. Mm. And it's not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah. You know? Yeah. My mom my, 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 my mother came for my ordination back in May and we had went back and forth for weeks whether she'll be with us for the Sabbath morning practice. My mother is observant and religious and she prays in a synagogue where women and men sit separately and there's no music and there's no electricity and certainly no you know, priests and vicars on the stage. And I said, well, it's going to be that kind of Shabbat. There's going to be a lot of music. There's going to be a lot of faith leaders. There's going to be all of us sitting together. And and I'd love you to be there. And um, and she came to her great credit and said to me later, I was very moved. This is absolutely not my cup of tea. I will not be back. But I love what you did. I'm looking around and there's hundreds of people who are in tears, who are dancing, who are praying, who are delighted to be part of this tradition. Otherwise, they would not have had a place to to tap into the sacred. So my mom is not my audience. I, I've, I've got enough therapy to deal with that. <laughs> Rabbi Amichai Laulavi is founding spiritual leader of Lab Shul in New York City and the founding director of Storytelling. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Aaron Kalasako, Kristen Lin. Prophet Adewu, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, Siri Grassley, Nicole Finn, and Colleen Sheck. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent production of the On Being Project. It's distributed to public radio stations by PRX. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at HumanityUnited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. 
The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.